You're listening to Monday Science Podcast, the show that brings you the latest in science, technology and health with your host, me, Dr. Bahija Raimi Abraham. Welcome back to Monday Science. Hope everybody's well. Happy Monday. Um, I think we're now in summer officially, so that's great. Um, We're now on episode seven, and I actually just wanted to take uh, some time to say thank you. I'm I'm amazed that I've made it to episode seven, Um, but I'm also grateful for all the listeners, all the Monday Science listeners that um, are tuning in every week or whenever you you get a chance to listen to um, each episode to uh, just find out more about the exciting world of uh, science, technology and health. Um, And, you know, when I when I started Monday Science, as I've explained in the first episode, um, I also didn't really have any expectation that anybody would listen, Um, just more hope. So uh, hoping works. So I just wanted to take that moment to say thank you to everybody. Um, so yeah, so today we're in episode seven, very exciting. Um, just as a reminder that you can send your questions, uh, any questions that you may have to mondayscience2020 at gmail.com, uh, or through the chat function on our website, which is mondayscience.wixsite.com forward slash podcast. And you can also leave a voice message if you wish, um, a few episodes ago, I believe it was episode four, we had um, a a voice message that was left um, with a question. So that was really cool. Uh, So for today's episode, episode seven, a very special episode, uh, by popular demand, we're going to have um, an update on retractions over the last couple of weeks um, since episode five. So a lot has actually happened and uh, it's it's quite interesting. (laughs) Uh, So um, I'm going to just quickly recap. So in episode seven, no, in episode five, sorry, I went through uh, the publication process, right? So let's just have a little recap of that. So when somebody wants to publish their research findings, they they uh, do so in a peer review journal. That's, you know, what they should do, really. And then you have the pre-publication stage, which is where the manuscript or the article is reviewed and critiqued by reviewers. Um, in who are and these reviewers are in the field before the article is accepted. Just a comment about reviewers. Uh, um, there are lots of jokes about reviewers and different types of reviewers. Uh, I'm not going to go into that now, but um, I might see if I can find some uh, links for some light entertainment. Anyway, so the whole uh, pre-publication review stage is overseen by the editor of the journal. Um, and then this editor can does also have the power to override decisions that are made by the reviewers. And I've actually had experience with that as well. But that's for another day's conversation. Um, and so once the manuscript or the article, and by the way, we tend to refer to the manuscript or the article as a paper. So I think for ease, I'll just say once the paper. So once the paper has been reviewed and the authors have made the suggested changes by that were made by the reviewer, it will then be accepted and published in the respective journal. If let's say the reviewers um, say, oh, you know, this is really bad, like the, the, the way in which it was written or the science or whatever the topic is, isn't good, then the paper could be rejected um, at that pre-review stage. 
And um, as I mentioned before, the peer review stage is meant to, it's kind of like a gateway, you know, it's meant to help question the integrity of the work, highlight any issues that um, the authors address. One point that I should highlight is that when you publish a paper, um, it's also the same with grants, but we'll talk about grants another day. <laughs> but with a, uh, with a paper, when you're publishing, you are allowed to, well, you they, the, the publishing house asks you to suggest reviewers. So um, there's a point to make that there will be reviewers that would be randomly assigned to the paper to review, but one or maybe two of those reviewers could be the people you suggest. And so um, some people could suggest, you know, just random uh, people in the field who they, they don't know. And then you can also suggest, I mean, I don't really know the ethics of this, but then you could suggest uh, people that you do know. Um, and these could be just people in the field that you do actually directly know. And there's a lot of um, ethical considerations with that because, you know, if you um, ask one of your mates to review your work and it is anonymous, reviewing is anonymous, but then uh, you can there is now some journals are asking to have sort of like an open policy. So we know the people who are reviewing our papers. Um, but, you know, there's that question of if you're asking a, a quote unquote friend or somebody you know to review your work and that person questions the integrity of the work, you're putting them in a very difficult situation. So that's uh, just a point that I think it's important to highlight. So anyway, so after uh, the paper is published, the peer review process does continue because as the publications have read, people may question the work, uh, they may not agree with it, or they may even actually agree and have support. And so re readers can send letters to the editor of the journal or correspond with the editor, and these are usually published um, and reviewed as well in most cases. So COVID-19 retracted papers. So there's an update. So the number of papers um, as of this episode um, is actually 20 retracted papers. So two weeks ago in episode five, there were 15 retractions. And now there have been five new retractions in the last two weeks. Um, those in the in the field uh, of or in the profession, sorry, where they have to publish, you will know that it's very, very, very unusual to have such high numbers of retractions in one topic. 20 retractions since, I guess, I, I'm not quite sure when the first uh, COVID-19 paper was uh, published, but I can assume perhaps it could be around February, maybe, let's just say, but 20 papers, even if you want to say 20 papers retracted in the last six months, that is a lot. On one topic, it's a lot. Um, so as I said, so there are five new uh, papers that have been retracted in the last two weeks. Um, I'm going to talk specifically about one that um, I, I, I've read through the the new five, and uh, yeah, I just I'll just talk about it. Okay, so one of the articles is very very bizarre. The title is "Coronavirus Killed by Sound Vibrations Produced by Tali or Ganti." a potential hypothesis. Now I had to do a bit of research. So tally, or I don't, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, but tally is a plate that is used to serve food in South Asia and Southeast Asia, and ganti is a bell. So the background to this is interesting. So to mitigate the spread of coronavirus in India, the prime minister urged the people of India to observe a self-implemented curfew, which was called a janta curfew. And this was 
on March 22nd of this year. And the curfew was to be from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. The Prime Minister also made an appeal that everyone should clap at 5 p.m. to show their gratitude to the helpers and the medical practitioners, you know, healthcare professionals who are working, you know, relentlessly to fight the virus. So following on from that announcement, which is fine, that's lovely, um, a message on social media uh, was starting to circulate claiming that the clapping and banging of utensils um, together at 5pm would make such a vibration in the atmosphere that the coronavirus will be destroyed. This message was then forwarded on WhatsApp and other social media uh, platforms. On Twitter, people were tweeting about the timing of the request to the clap and saying that this aligned with something that's going on with the moon and that the the bells and the clapping combined with the time, the, the cycle of the moon um, will result in a cumulative vibration, which would encourage blood uh, circulation in the body. Um, and these claims were branded as fake. You know, there was a fact, a fact checking platform uh, called PIB that, um, you know, was saying that these facts aren't, aren't real, like it doesn't make sense. So it's not really clear. And this is the part where I, I have tried, I have investigated, I have looked. It is not clear how someone, I think it, 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 someone or a group of researchers, because the evidence of the paper has been completely taken off the uh, journal's website. Um, but it's not really clear how anyone wrote an article about this. So it, from what I've understood, uh, the hypothesis of the vibrations in the atmosphere to kill the virus, as well as the moon, all of this coinciding with the moon, uh, the lunar cycle, this all was uh, on social media before the paper was written. Uh, so the article was published in the Journal of Molecular Pharmaceuticals and Regulatory Affairs. Oh, gosh. Dates of the publication and retraction are unknown. So this is a peer-reviewed journal. Uh, so some, some two or three reviewers, I'm not sure how many, they would have seen this article and thought, sounds great. Yeah, seems seems valid. Yeah, yeah, we're going we're gonna to go with that. We're just going to accept it and maybe they had comments but actually I should well I say that but you know as I've mentioned before there could have been the other angle that maybe the reviewers were like this makes no sense I, I don't really know what this is and then the editor was like yes it makes all the sense who knows because it's been completely retracted you can't find anything on the web on the on the journal website but um what they did say and I'll just read this so they said the paper the wrong paper was published due to some technical glitch hmm. The information pertaining in this paper is misleading the readers and uh, creating massive conflicts amid the scientific community. The appropriate actions have been taken or taken by the author, editor and concerned staff responsible for such act. Uh, doesn't really give much away because they, I mean, the wrong paper was published due to some technical glitch, but that doesn't take away the title um, of the paper. Um, I guess they are acknowledging that you know, it is misleading, but I would have, I would have loved to read that paper just to understand where, where we're going with this. And, and, and actually in particular, I would be intrigued to know if the journey from the, the information in social media and how that influenced the paper's direction. Um, I don't know if anybody remember, there was a point um, a few months ago when there was like a, a 
it's like a meme going around with a huge snake. Um, I, I'm not very good at snakes. I don't really like them, but it was like a huge snake in the middle of, a, of the sea and with people on the beach screaming. And it was like, ah, oh, it's the end of the world. And that was sort of doing the round saying, you see on top of Corona, now there are these giant snakes in the sea. So um, yeah, it's just, yeah, just a very interesting, uh, <laughs> interesting scenario. Um, you can go on Retraction Watch, which have retractionwatch.com. They've summarized all the other five papers. Uh, that have recently been retracted. But I have to say this one, fantastic. It was just the most interesting. Now, uh, the next article that I want to touch on. So as I said, in the last couple of weeks, have been there's been a lot going on in, so aside from COVID, which is sort of, uh, sort of like there's a baseline <laughs> COVID retraction conversation, but there've been um, a lot of uh, other papers that have been retracted, in particular, uh, ones that have been relating to the inappropriate use of study, let's say, quote, unquote, study findings to justify certain things. And I'm going to talk about that now. So an article claiming that skin pigmentation is related to aggression and sexuality in humans, which was published in a journal called Personality and Individual Differences, uh, was retracted by the publishing house Elsevier last week, Wednesday. It was on the 17th of June. Uh, in 2019, so why this is significant is because in 2019, there was a petition for the retraction of this paper, which had over 1,000 signatures. Um, just to highlight, so Elsevier is one of the largest um, publishing houses. Um, and there's been a, they've, there've been a lot of questions around their integrity in terms of and the cost um, for processing fee cost for their open access and just the ethics of everything. Um, a point, again, just mentioning the, the publication process. So that reviewer stage uh, that I mentioned, that's not paid, like academics or whoever, they don't get paid to review an article. Um, actually, I should probably explain one point without, I don't mean to digress, but um, in the world of academia, which people don't tend to understand, is uh, we have to, pub, you know, we conduct research and then we're encouraged. Well, it's part of our KPI, so key performance indicators, is part of our, our job to publish the things that we've, the research and our, our key findings. Um, but we, so you write the paper, you publish it, then you have to pay the journal to, and they ha it's, this is a processing thing, but you pay the journal uh, to allow you <laughs> to publish your findings in their, in the, so you pay the publishing house to allow you to pub publish your findings in their journal, um, and then you review the articles for free. Um, and the only way that an article can make it into a journal is if the reviewer um, agrees. So one of the big conversations around publication over the last few years has been why are we paying uh, journals or publishing houses to publish our work? Whereas, because if it wasn't for people writing papers and then, you know, think that there wouldn't be a journal, there wouldn't be a publishing house. And then at the same time, the uh, publishing houses and the journals, they don't pay people to review. It's meant to be part of our quote unquote academic duty. So there's a lot of, debate around um, that. And I think 
a few over the last few years, um, Elsevier for some reason, and I'm I'm not too sure, but for some big reason, they've been uh, subject to a lot of criticism. Anyway, back to this paper. So, uh, as I mentioned, um, the title of the paper was uh, Do Pigmentation and Melanocortin System Modulate Aggression and Sexuality in Humans as They Do in Animals? And this was published in March 2012. So just to break down some of those key terms there. So pigmentation, um, which is the natural colouring of animal or plant tissue, uh, the melanocortin system refers to a set of sy- signaling pathways and systems that they regulate an array of physiological functions, which also includes pigmentation, uh, regulating appetite, body weight, our temperature, how we respond to inflammation and our memory. One of the authors, uh, his name is Donald Templer, he's a psychologist and best known for his theories on race and intelligence. Uh, he he was associated um, with a white national nationalist group called American Renaissance and would commonly would often present the findings from his work um, at several white nationalist American Renaissance conferences. On a side note, uh, Donald Templer also published a book called Size Import- Is Size Important? which uh, focused on variations in human penis size and preferences for penises of certain sizes, as well as developing something called the death anxiety scale. Interesting. Uh, The second author, this is John Rushton. So he advocated the idea that racial differences in IQ were partially related to genetic inheritance. And he published a book called uh, Race, Evolution and Behaviour, where he used something called the R and then it's forward slash K selection theory to explain what he thought was views on characteristics and differences between East Asians, Europeans and Africans and their descendants. So back to the attraction. Uh, in the paper, which I've said, I'll just read the title again, do pigmentation and the melanocortin system modulate aggression and sexuality in humans as they do in other animals? Uh, In this paper, they hypothesized that skin color was related to aggression and sexuality in humans. But they really focused a lot on the, well, okay, I'll go. So they reviewed animal studies. So this is a very interesting approach. Um, they They separately reviewed animal studies that found that darker pigmented individuals averaged high amounts of aggression and sexual activity than lighter pigmented individuals. And they hypothesized that similar relationships between pigmentation, aggression, and sexuality occur in humans. So they reviewed animals, so just to go through that again, so they reviewed animal studies, so this is just whatever was in the literature um, about the relationship between pigmentation and aggression and sexual activity, compared that to you know, and so when they look at pigmentation, darker versus lighter, and then try to correlate that to what happens in animals, trying to correlate that to what happens in human, in humans. So they first reviewed the literature on non-human animals and then uh, yeah, reviewed some of the correlates of melanin in people. Um, and what they claimed to have found was that both within human populations, so that means within, like between siblings, and between populations, so that's races, nations, and states, 
Studies found that darker pigmented people average higher levels of aggression and sexual activity and also lower IQ. As an example of some of their findings in the animal studies, they found that, so this is one of just a comment, black rats are more aggressive and so make poorer pets. However, black rats with white spots from the white spotting gene are shown to be calmer and more easily handled. They also brought dogs into the equation as well. So they said dogs too show a relationship between colouring and behaviour. And this was based on a work by somebody else called Corin. Um, there's another researcher. And apparently black dogs are more difficult to adopt from shelters as they're rated as less desirable pets. Anyway, so um, assuming that, you know, people's attitudes and beliefs about dogs is what they said, that assuming people's attitudes and beliefs about dogs have some validity, that the study that Corin did where he had an array of, I think he had black and yellow uh, Labrador retrievers, and people had to rate which dogs they thought were the most were, were friendlier, and people rated the black dogs as being less friendly, so therefore they wouldn't make good pets, and they're likely to be more aggressive. So in the paper by Templer and Rushton, they said that assuming that people's attitudes and beliefs about dogs had some validity, this their, that study uh, provides further support for their pigmentation hypothesis. Um, so in support of their hypothesis, the that people with darker pigment are more aggressive, Rushton and Templer cite, cited an author called Richard Lynn, who, and Richard Lynn proposed that black people were more psychotic than white people. And uh, so Richard Lynn was a professor at Ulster University, and he was actually stripped of his emeritus status in 2018 because the student uh, students protested his views. So this paper, this uh, skin pigmentation paper, has been cited 11 times over, so between 2018, 2018, sorry, 2012 and now. So eight over eight years, it's been cited 11 times, which actually, you know, for the length of time, eight years, 11 citations, isn't actually that much. However, when you look at the papers that included this pigmentation article as a reference, it then, it's quite interesting because um, uh, one of the papers that used uh, a reference this pigmentation study in, in their work, which is entitled one of the paper entitled uh, "Japanese North-South Gradient in IQ Predicts Differences in Stature, Skin Color, Income, and Homicidal Rate," and this was published in a journal called Intelligence. Um, they had uh, several conclusions, but one of their main points was that um, one of their main points being that there was a lower IQ seen in southern Japanese islands, um, and this could be attributed to warmer climates, warmer cli climates, which have had less cognitive demand uh, for, and meaning that the people have, less, have had less cognitive demands for the last 1,500 years. So this Japanese article was referenced a further 38 times. I didn't then go into read, you know, who else had referenced that. But actually also the Japanese article um, in their acknowledgement, they strongly um, acknowledged the support of Templar in the uh, kind of uh, quote unquote intellectual understanding of the key concepts in the paper. Um, and so, you know, this, this combined with also what's going on with the COVID, it just highlights the issue with retractions because once the papers have been removed, 
it's not clear as to what happens to the papers, the, the other papers that use them as a reference. Uh, after a retraction, in most cases, no further action is, is taken. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, we've taken the paper off. Apologies. That's it. Um, but, you know, with the relative, if we look at COVID, uh, COVID-19 papers, for example, with the relatively high number of retractions in the past few months, it is highlighting the need for some form of regulation or policy to review the impact retracted papers have. And you can see that with the skin pigmentation paper, for example, which was used as a reference in 11 other studies, and in particular, this Japanese study that was then used to further justify a certain narrative that doesn't have any scientific basis. So, you know, I, I really hope that um, with the mass number, because obviously not everything is, is related to COVID-19, but I think if we can use the example that in the last, let's just say six months, we've had a very high number of retractions. What does this mean about the publication process? What does this mean about the reviewing process? Just everything and, you know, what's going on there. And I hope that something that can come out of this is looking at other retractions. You know, I've mentioned one already in the pigmentation paper and so forth. But if we can now look at just retractions in general and actually start to look at the impact of a paper that's the whose integrity or scientific merit has been questioned and look at the impact that has had on further and subsequent work because once a paper has been published people can use that to say oh yes this justifies my findings or this justifies my narrative um and so it's just going to be interesting to see because it's it's getting a lot now <laughs> so it's going to be interesting uh to see where things go from that Thanks for joining us this week on the Monday Science Podcast. Make sure to visit our website. Uh, details are in the episode description where you can subscribe to make sure that you never miss the show. Uh, so catch up with you next week. Bye.